0: Hello and welcome once again to Battleground Ideas, When Faith, Philosophy, and Culture Collide. I'm Chuck Mason and I want to welcome you back to the podcast again and say thank you because we know your time is important. This week's episode, we're going to continue once again looking at the rise and embrace of socialism in America. Last week's episode was called, And the Genocide Begins. And we took a look at the systematic murder and genocide of those people who were considered exploiters and oppressors and enemies of the state. By Vladimir Lenin in the first socialist state. And, and we're going to take a look at the revolutions that happened within China and Cambodia to help give some insight as to the mindset of socialists and why it becomes so murderous each and every time it's tried. Now we have two goals for the podcast today. And the first is to expose you to the historical facts of how unimaginably Brutal and sadistic these socialist dictatorships could be when they were dealing with and targeting those people that they consider to be exploiters and oppressors. And once again, this is simply letting the facts of history speak. And the other is to try to understand why these governments become so unimaginably brutal every time and everywhere they're tried. Socialists today will often make the claim that it was old school socialism that was responsible for the brutality and that everything is going to be different today. But here's the problem with that statement. We could in one sense agree or possibly believe that was the case if the brutality and the genocide was limited to say the first revolution where once it began everything got out of hand and lessons were learned from the unimaginable mistakes that were made and that revolutions moving forward from that time were kinder and gentler and didn't systematically liquidate tens of millions of people. But that's precisely what continued to happen from the Russian Revolution on forward. The Russian Revolution was followed by the Chinese Revolution. Under Mao Zedong, a minimum of 45 million people were exterminated in the concentration camps. But it didn't end there. Following the end of the Vietnam War, and the fall of south vietnam marxist principles were implemented in a socialist government and once again concentration camps flourished and millions died and the same thing happened in the killing fields in cambodia under pol pot and we're going to take an in-depth look at that today because the foundation for that entire socialist experiment in cambodia was the phd thesis of Kwe sam that he wrote for his doctoral degree that he received studying at the prestigious University the Sorbonne in Paris. These governments are not accidents of history. In reality they are carefully crafted experiments that seem to have zero empathy for human suffering and the only limits to their brutality seem to be the limitations of the human imagination. We're going to begin today by taking a look at the socialist government in the Chinese Revolution and the millions that died under Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward. The Chinese Revolution was an application of the principles of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin that we had discussed in previous podcasts. And they used the Soviet Revolution as a model, even starting their own revolution in the month of October, as Vladimir Lenin had decades earlier in Russia. And they followed the very same model in terms of targeting those that they thought were exploiters and oppressors and implementing the use of concentration camps to re-educate the masses and exterminate enemies of the state. And the sadistic nature of the brutality that happened within these camps is unimaginable. So I'm going to read an excerpt from an article from the New York Times. And here's the background for the story. The Chinese have never denied what happened under Mao, but they have tried their best to keep records and documents of the details sealed and unavailable to the democracies of the West. But as control has relaxed within socialist governments, more access has been gained and people have been able to read China's own internal documentation of what occurred in their country under Mao Zedong. A warning for you that this is harsh, but once again, it's simply history. The article was written by Frank de on December 15, 2010. and we begin the worst catastrophe in china's history and one of the worst anywhere was the great famine of 1958 to 1962 and to this day the ruling communist party has not fully acknowledged the degree to which it was a direct result of the forcible herding of villagers into communes under the great leap forward that Mao Zedong launched in 1958. to this day the party attempts to cover up the, the disaster Usually by blaming the weather, yet detailed records of the horror exist in the party's own national and local archives. I'm going to scroll down a little bit here. Historians have known for some time that the Great Leap Forward resulted in one of the world's worst famines. Demographers have used official census figures to estimate that 20 to 30 million people died. But inside the archives is an abundance of evidence from the minutes of emergency committees to secret police reports and public security investigations that show these estimates to be woefully inadequate. In the, number of, in the summer of 1962, for instance, the head of the Public Security Bureau in Sichuan sent a long handwritten list of casualties to the local boss, informing him that 10.6 million people had died in his province from 1958 to 1961. In many other cases local party committees investigated the scale of death and the immediate aftermath of the famine leaving detailed computations of the scale of the horror. In all the records I studied suggest that the Great Leap Forward was responsible for at least 45 million deaths. Between two and three million of these victims were tortured to death or summarily executed often for the slightest infraction People accused of not working hard enough were hung and beaten. Sometimes they were bound and thrown into ponds. Punishments for the least violations included mutilation and forcing people to eat excrement. One report dated November 30, 1960 and circulated to the top leadership, most likely including Mao, tells how a man named Wang Ziyu had one of his ears chopped off, his legs tied up, tied up with iron wire, and a 10-kilogram stone dropped on his back before he was branded with a sizzling tool. His crime? Digging up a potato. When a boy stole a handful of grain in Hunan Village, the local boss forced his father to bury his son alive on the spot. The report of the investigative team sent by the provincial leadership in 1969 to interview survivors of the famine records that the man died of grief three weeks later starvation was the punishment of first resort as report after report shows food was distributed by the spoonful according to merit and used to force people to obey the party one inspects, one inspector in sechuan wrote that commune members too sick to work are deprived of food it hastens their death as the catastrophe unfolded people were forced to resort to previously unthinkable acts to survive As the moral fabric of society unraveled, they abused one another, stole food from one another, and poisoned one another. Sometimes they resorted to cannibalism. One police investigation from February 25, 1960, details some 50 cases in villages in Gansu. Name of culprit? Nan Zong Sheng. Name of victim? Yang Eshun. Relationship with the culprit? Younger brother. Manner of crime? Killed and eaten. Reason? livelihood issues the term quote, famine unquote tends to support the widespread view that the deaths were largely the result of half-baked and poorly executed economic programs but the archives show that coercion terror and violence were the foundation of the great leap forward mao was sent many reports about what was happening in the countryside some of them scribbled in longhand he knew about the horror but pushed for even greater f- extractions of food At a secret meeting in Shanghai on March 25, 1959, he ordered the party to procure up to one-third of all the available grain, much more than ever before. The minutes of the meeting reveal a chairman insensitive to human loss, quote, when there is not enough to eat, people starve to death, but it is better to let half of the people die so that the other half can eat their fill, unquote. Mao's great famine was not merely an isolated episode in the making of modern China. It was its turning point. The subsequent cultural revolution was the leader's attempt to take revenge on the colleagues who had dared oppose him during the great leap forward. To this day, there is little public information inside China about this dark past. Historians who are allowed to work in the party archives tend to publish their findings across the border in Hong Kong. There is no museum, no monument, No Remembrance Day to honor the tens of millions of victims. Survivors, most of them in the countryside, are rarely given a voice, all too often taking their memories with them to their graves. This is the challenge of dealing with socialist experiments, in that this horror is not isolated to one government or one dictator or one set of individuals at a time. It is replicated over and over again in countless different cultures, in countless different countries, with countless different leaders, who always seem to achieve similar results. And as I said, this isn't an accident of history, but this is absolutely intentional. And nothing demonstrates this more than the revolution that took place in Cambodia. The Cambodian Revolution gained momentum and took shape in the mid-1970s. It was made famous by the movie The Killing Fields, and many people are familiar with the names Pol Pot. But there's a darker side to the Cambodian Revolution that is simply mind-boggling in our efforts to understand what could possibly be running through the minds of a people who embrace the ideology of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. When we talk about socialist countries and their revolutions, people generally identify or associate a government with one individual who was considered to be a dictator and had complete authoritarian control. And although that might be the case, there's no way that you can carry out the systematic extermination of people in concentrations camps scattered over hundreds of thousands of square miles unless you have a committed following of people who believe in the ideology and are willing to help carry it out. And that's the case with Cambodia and Kew Samphan. Samphan was a committed Marxist, and he was also a member of the inner circle that ultimately became the Khmer Rouge and ushered in the Marxist revolution in Cambodia. But here's the most unique and really terrifying aspect about his life he was an incredibly well educated man who spent time studying with a group of committed Marxists in some of the best universities in France. He received his Ph.D. from the Sorbonne in France and developed a new approach to achieve economic equity or equality based upon the theories of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. After receiving his Ph.D., he returned to Cambodia and became part of the revolutionary group that brought about the Marxist revolution in Cambodia. His Ph.D. thesis became the basis by which they restructured the economy and society of the Cambodian people moving millions of people out of the, quote, prosperous cities into the countryside to form an agrarian culture and limit the accumulation of wealth. And the end result was that up to three million people were systematically murdered or starved to death. So let me bring this back to our second goal of the podcast and try to place this into perspective. Adherents of socialism are always saying that somehow the murder and the mayhem are the response of strong men dictators who pervert socialism or create some old school socialism that isn't anything resembling what true socialism should be if that's the case then why did cambodia ever happen the khmer rouge took over in cambodia in 1975 that's 58 years after the first revolution in russia and it's almost 2 years after Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago was published, which ripped the veil off of the Soviet Union, revealing how incredibly murderous socialism is. In addition to that, as we said, most of the deaths in China happened between 1958 and 1962, which was the end of the Kennedy administration and the beginning of the Eisenhower administration. Word was getting out to the rest of the world about the genocide in China. And yet you have a Cambodian PhD student thinking that you can give it one more try and we'll get this socialist experiment right, ignoring all the evidence that the world knew was occurring. If ever there was a time in which enlightened, educated people should have been able to step back and say after nearly 60 years and all of the death and all of the torture and all the suffering that this isn't going to work, that would have been the time. But as I said in our earlier podcasts, this is the problem with socialists. They are committed to an ideology and a belief that that ideology works. And they try again and again to achieve the utopia, irregardless of the body count. And this is why I'm concerned about the embrace of socialism in America. By 1975, there's been nearly 16 years of socialism. And although no one's had time to count all the bodies yet... Between the Soviet Union and China, they're piling up. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn is revealing that for the world to see and to know. And yet a Cambodian intellectual who's educated at one of the most elite European universities thinks that he can rework this and it's going to be successful this time. I mean, who could have predicted that there would be another 2 to 3 million corpses pile up? And yet we're to believe in America that this time things would be different. Should we believe the assurances we've been given? I mean, I'm sure the Cambodians were told the same thing. I'm working hard not to pile on here. I could go on endlessly with Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, or a book that chronicles even worse atrocities called Cannibal Island. As people have access to this kind of information, and the world begins to learn that the socialist atrocities were many times worse than those carried out by the Third Reich, it seems as though the world has gotten wise that a socialist revolution in your nation isn't a healthy thing for anybody in any way shape or form. And we haven't seen any true socialist takeovers of governments and economies outside of Venezuela. But socialists and those who hold on to the philosophy of Karl Marx have recognized the failure of the great revolutions also. And they're not interested in taking over countries any longer. The postmodern philosophers of Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida have openly transformed Marxist ideology into an underground movement and a social movement, and it's emerging as identity politics and the social justice movement here in America. And that's going to be the topic of our next podcast. If you've been tracking with us and listening to these podcasts, I hope you'll continue, because understanding identity politics and the social justice movement is just as important is learning about the history and comprehending how brutal socialism has been over the last century. And here's the point I want you to consider. The brutality happened because socialists felt they were ending inequality, exploitation, and suffering. And the ends justified the means, meaning that if it took torture and murder and starvation to accomplish that, then it was acceptable because equality or equity between all peoples was reached. The current identity politics and social justice movements seek equality and equity on levels that go beyond economics. They want social equality, they want social equity, and they see injustice, oppression, exploitation happening everywhere at every level in society. And it's not simply limited to the economics of capitalism and economic exploitation. And so the question is, how far are they willing to go to achieve equity? They are completely buying into the same mindset and ideology of Marx and Lenin and Mao, who liquidated so many people. How far are they willing to go to achieve equity in every level of society? This question is critical, it's legitimate, and it's the very reason we're going to explore this in depth in the upcoming podcasts. Once again, I'm Chuck Mason, and thank you for spending time with us here at Battleground Ideas, When Faith, Philosophy, and Culture Collide. Once again, our Facebook page is up and running. You'll see some graphics changes coming over the next week or so. Please like us um, at the page, share at the page, um, share the page, please. Um, Let us know your comments, your feedback, and you can email me at chuck at battlegroundideas.com. Again, if um, any feedback or questions, I'd like to address those. Um, at the end of each podcast. So once again, thanks for spending time with us and look for our cultural segment that should come out Thursday or Friday of this week.